just in case. <laughs> I know myself too well. So I hope the songs that we just sang would act as a prayer for you guys um, as we go into what I'm about to talk about. I hope that God will open your heart and show himself to you and that you will come to know a God who sees you and who hears you. So today I'm going to start um, from Genesis 16, and I'm not going to open it up and read it to you because I'm more of a storyteller and a poet. So you can go and read it yourselves at some point if you want to, but I'm kind of going to weave in and out of the story. The story of Hagar and Ishmael is not uncomplicated. Hagar is a servant of Sarai given to Abram to achieve one goal, bear a child so that Sarai can have a family. And those familiar with the story will know that God promised Abram and Sarai that they would have a child together, one who would be the son of promise, and Abram would be the father of many nations, and Sarai the mother of many nations. And their names would not be forgotten. But after years of barrenness, Sarai grew impatient, and since she was old, she decided to give her young and fertile servant to Abram as a concubine. Being more than a typical servant and less than a wife, Hagar became pregnant, and this changed everything. Suddenly, she who had no apparent inheritance became something worth um, more than Sarai, and the one whose name's meaning is unknown to us, so much so that the definition of her name means the stranger has found herself a new relation. And it isn't long until this goes to Hagar's head and she, becomes, she begins to mistreat Sarai. And Sarai's not happy about that, so she goes to Abram, who reminds her that she has more power than her servant. And what happens is Sarai goes and treats Hagar harshly, which leads her to flee. And she takes that newfound relation and identity with her. And suddenly, um, she finds herself running away. Another meaning of her name is the, dri the driving out or flight. Her life was in danger. But she has decided that she would rather be exposed to the unpredictable dangers of the wilderness than the cruelty of Sarai. Pregnant and distraught, Hagar attempts to return to her home in Egypt, but she is met by an angel of God on her way who confronts her and calls her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, and he asks her two questions. Where are you from and where are you going? She says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai, and notice that she says, nothing about where she is going. Perhaps Hagar sees being driven out, driven out as a perpetual reality. Maybe Egypt is a place that she feels that she belongs in, a place where no one is waiting for her, waiting to receive her. It's a foreign place, just as foreign as the place where she came from. But Hagar is found at the intersection of running from known slavery and mistreatment and running to the unknown perils of the wilderness. And somehow she finds herself singled out and called and she is called upon to submit to her mistress, to be a symbol of virtue under oppressive hands. Another name for Hagar can be traced back to the word for stamina or fortress. And what does it mean for those of us who must withstand marginalization on a daily basis under the nose of those oppressive systems and people? But she is given a promise that she will be the mother of a multitude, and her child would be named Ishmael because her affliction has been heard by none other than the same God who made the promise to Abram and Sarah. Her name too would be remembered. In prayer and in praise, Hagar recognizes that she is speaking to a God 
that she is speaking to God, and, he, and then she decides to give him a name. And she calls him the God who sees me, because surely I have seen the one who looks after me. Hagar is foreign, disenfranchised, a slave, and somehow she becomes this matriarchal figure and the first person in the Bible to give God a name. And there's so much to unpack here and so many places I can go. And I often see scripture through the lens of my experiences and my knowledge with rose-colored glasses. Rose-colored meaning I see the happy, uncomplicated story. God raises up a woman and she would have otherwise been stomped out, but he finds a way to pay attention to her. And God empathizes with her and sees her pain and responds to it. Rose-colored meaning that I approach this text as someone who thinks deeply and feels deeply. And I would be lying to you if I didn't say that I have deep thoughts and feelings about verse 9. What does it mean for Hagar to return to her mistress and submit to her? As a religion major, I've come to understand scripture as uplifting and beautiful, but I can't deny the tensions in it. So leading up to this, I've had many conversations to widen my imagination, and I've researched to counterbalance all the thinking and feeling I've allotted for. And I can tell you that after spending time with this text, um, you will find it reading you, because it has definitely read me. And I'm at a place in my life where I'm answering these two questions. Where are you from, and where are you going? This is my last semester. Come on, somebody give the Lord a praise. Yes. Oh, I'm, so, I'm excited. I really am. It's my last month of being a college student. And there's this existential crisis that comes with that. But that's a story for another day. We don't have time. Um, and I'm very good <laughs> at avoiding the question. So what's next? I'm very good at avoiding the answers to that. But I find myself um, having a hard time coming to the reality that I will no longer be a college student. Because one thing I've learned about college, one thing I find absolutely remarkable, is that you get four years to have an excuse for not having your life together. <laughs> when people ask you why you haven't made it yet, you can just be like, I'm still in school. Um, so for me, I think I'm going to go with the loophole on that and go to grad school. Uh, <laughs> when people ask me where I am from, sometimes I feel like Hagar when I answer that. I feel like I answer from a place where I am situated in my circumstances. And another theory for Hagar's name uh, is that she not only represents the stranger, but strangers or a strange people in a whole ethnic group and identity. So sometimes when I answer this question, I answer it from a place of this checkered, oppressive background of black and brown people who have been uprooted from their place of origin and scattered around the world. In America, our skin will always tell the story of our otherness and signify that we are not originally from here. So you can ask anyone who is not originally from here what it's like to answer that question, and they can tell you that sometimes as well-meaning as this dialogue can be, and as much as it comes from a place of generosity and curiosity, generous, like, genuine curiosity, that sometimes it can be alienating and separating. So history is complicated for Hagar and for me. And when I read this text, I see it through who I am, a single black female Haitian immigrant who is called to ministerial leadership despite obvious introverted tendencies. So I see <laughs> inadequacy that is pregnant with purpose. And there are so many in this community who wrestle with questions of legitimacy for Hagar and her story. 
her social security was in flux as her position changed from slave to wife to mother to refugee and to slave again with this unclear status as a matriarch. And then you read her story on in Genesis 21, and you learn that when Sarai becomes pregnant, she is cast out again. But the living one who sees her, hears her, and responds to her, her cries of desperation. And there are so many in this community who wrestle with questions of legitimacy, and there are so many who are in pain, who have complicated histories, and so many of us who have no idea where we're going, and who find ourselves in the wilderness and in, the po in, in, in between certain despair and possible despair, and so many of us who feel like disinherited outsiders. And there are so many of us who need a God who sees and hears, and so many of us long to be seen and heard. I have connected with so many in this community who have seen and heard me. Some of my friends I invited today to be seen and heard by you. I asked a few of them to share their struggles and their pains with me and to answer this question, fill in the blank here, and say, I wish I could be seen in my struggle with blank. So I asked them if they were willing to stand and face their peers, and I gave them the option to bail out because I know that it's difficult. It would make other people uncomfortable. It would be asking a lot, and I was surprised by their tenacity in their responses, both in their willingness to be uncomfortable for the sake of this message and their willingness to invite you into their discomfort. But I changed my mind <laughs> because I know that they not only deserve to be seen, but they deserve to be heard by a community that is willing to journey with them. And I know that asking them to stand would be a beautiful picture of possibilities, but something would be missing. These stories are important, and we need to create the adequate space so that we can hear them well. And so that requires us to go and seek and find these people and ask them, where are you from and where are you going? So it would be easy for me to give you a shortcut in that journey. And I know that some of you guys are ready for it, but I know that it also make another reality more obvious. Safe spaces aren't everywhere. So some people responded with fear that they would be judged, misunderstood, and dismissed in their standing, and that is completely valid. And I can definitely say that if you choose to stand up for anything in this life, you will be judged, misunderstood, and dismissed. And I've experienced that. So that illustration would have been beautiful, and it would have led to some great awkward moments for all of us to enjoy. <laughs> and when you're allowing yourself to be seen, it requires vulnerability and discomfort. And I've realized that since I've been involved in chapel for for two years, I've had a lot of practice. You have no idea um, how much effort people take into impressing this crowd. And <laughs> but I know myself, and I know that I'm awkward, so the best that I can do is invite you to be awkward with me. I am still not immune to those feelings of inadequacy, but I'm also all about inviting people into discomfort and vulnerability because I know that it's changed my life. And I see that vulnerability and worthiness are tied together and I know that standing here in all my awkward glory requires me to be seen honestly for who I am, but it also requires me to see myself honestly as someone worthy of being seen. So yeah, I can understand how, you know, three days notice would, you know, be a little bit difficult for people to stand here and do something like that. Um, it would have been a cool moment for some of us to open our eyes and even that and open our own eyes, opening our own eyes takes vulnerability. It's one thing to be willing to tell a story of pain and struggle, but it's another thing to open your heart and let those stories change you. 
But I mean, the Bible tells us that if we don't see the afflicted and the poor and the destitute and the disenfranchised and the abused and the stranger, then we don't see God. So what does it mean that our very own Jesus spent so much time with the brokenhearted and the downtrodden and the marginalized? And does that have any implications on where we need to be? And for those of us who are the brokenhearted, the downtrodden, and the marginalized, what does it mean for us to be part of a beloved community? And does it disturb you in the same way that it disturbs me that Hagar is sent, to sub sent back to submit to her servant? I know that it bothers me, and I have a difficult time with places in the Bible where God sends individuals back when they are told that they don't belong, whether it's explicit or not. Wouldn't it be easier to just seek out those rare, safe spaces for the marginalized and to, accept, to, be, to seek places that you're accepted without judgment and where your voice is heard and where your life matters? Hagar wanted to go back to Egypt because even if there was nothing there for her, at least she belonged there. And sometimes I just want to belong somewhere. And I want to feel like I don't have to fight to find a voice at a, at a table that doesn't want me or doesn't want all of me. A place like Hagar that sees part of me as a functional piece necessary for its survival but rejects other parts of me. A place that can co-opt my body, my skills, my talent, and my appearance but denies me the wholeness of my personhood. You can clap for that if you want. <laughs> or not. <laughs> Sometimes I really just want to belong somewhere, and it breaks my heart when people don't see the church as that place for them, a body and a collective where they can belong. And I've heard so many stories from this community of people who have varieties of the same story. And I just want to belong somewhere because belonging is necessary for my survival, and belonging is part of how I know that I am human. Because belonging is a song that we sing back to each other when we have forgotten who we are. So when belonging leads me to a place where, my, where I have to make my presence known and to claim a rightful seat at a table, and I, I have to ask myself if I would rather go hungry and thirsty than to face any kind of inequality, poor treatment, or lack of awareness, which some of us are so comfortable to live with. A place that ignores my otherness and the specificity of my situation and chooses to preach to me about how there is no more male, no female, no Jew, no Gentile, before it can recognize my femaleness, my Gentileness, my foreignness, my blackness, and the perspectives that come with all of that. But then I read, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And it sounds easy enough. And I can go on about what it means to love God and to be loved by God, but Jeff Kirksey already did a great job of that. So what does it mean for us to love ourselves and to love our neighbor. Who even is our neighbor? Honestly, ENC is a place where I started to love myself. And I've come to understand that I can't do God's work without self-love and self-care because sometimes self-love and self-care is just as much a protest against the feelings of illegitimacy and the pain and the suffering that this world has to offer me. And so when I sing the song, Build My Life, and I hear the words, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I will put my trust in you alone and I will not be shaken. I am singing from a place of knowing what it's like to have the stability of your life in question constantly. So great. If I love myself now, it'll be easy to love my neighbor. And our common understanding of what a neighbor is, 
as someone who lives close to you and someone who God has placed in your life, someone who is obvious and easy to love, right? We can all agree on that. And we want to put up barriers for loving our neighbors. We do our best to create distance between us and them. And as far as our human geography goes, and as far as human geography goes for Abram, when he banished Hagar in Genesis 21, she was out of sight and out of mind, far enough away that she and Ishmael could die without him having to see it happen. Out of sight, out of mind, out of consciousness, and out of visible responsibility. I saw this in Ferguson during Fusion, when we spoke to local clergy and activists about police, the police situation that surrounded um, Mike Brown's murder. People would drive around Ferguson to avoid the police ticketing that was happening there. And they would say to themselves, whatever you do, just don't go through Ferguson. And it was easy to keep Ferguson out of your consciousness if you had, a ch had no reason to step in to the plight that the people were, um, of the people who live there the people who had to drive through. So they were out of sight, out of mind, out of consciousness, and out of visible responsibility. In our human positioning, the neighbor is near. The neighbor is our normal, and they share something in common with us. They exist within our reach so that we don't have to do any extra legwork. This definition of neighbor sounds okay, except that it's not biblical, it's not Christ-like, and it's not, it's not what the church should be like. And the Old Testament calls for us to see the neighbor and the poor and the oppressed and the widow and the sojourner and the people who may not fit our definition of neighbor. So how can we love well if we're willing to stand at a comfortable distance from those who need our love the most? So who are we not seeing? Who are we not hearing? And once we have seen and heard, what will we do? Who do we allow to exist so far from the reach of our consciousness that we can avoid our responsibility to love them? For the Christians in this room, let me challenge you. Your neighbor is the unchurched roommate, friend, teammate, hallmate, classmate, etc. The one who doesn't get why we do all of this. It's the person whose language or accent is foreign, whether figuratively or literally. While you can see yourself as the uncomfortable one in their presence, I challenge you to embrace that discomfort. If you are standing at a distance with your eyes fixed only on conversion and holding on to your truths, I challenge you to take a seat and be silent. And when you are quick to dismiss the experiences of those who have left this church or this community before you acknowledge the pain and suffering that they've endured, I ask you to find it within you to find the humility to listen. And I, I invite you to ask them to walk with you in relationship that walks along the lines of tension, that is willing to admit that, yes, even in the church, it is possible to be an outsider. Which is ridiculous to me, because we are called to be a community of outsiders, but when did we become the in crowd? That's a sermon for another day. Are we forgetting that Hagar and Ishmael are like us, and we were once disenfranchised and unwelcomed at the banquet table of God's heavenly reception, or do we have no experiences on the outside that we can draw from? If that's the case, then as I stand here, practice hearing and listening, and I will not shy away from making you uncomfortable, and I hope God has shaped my heart to do the same, because I firmly believe that we need each other. And there's a song that says this so well, and some people hope we can sing it with me. I need you. You need me, 
We're all a part of God's body. Stand with me, agree with me. We're all a part of God's body. It is his will that every need be supplied. You are important to me. I need you to survive. That's Ohana, and that's the beloved community. And about a month ago, I sat in a church service and listened to a beautiful message about a seat at the table. I closed my eyes and I envisioned a heavenly banquet where I can be fully myself, laughing and enjoying life with people in the face, the faith, passing bread and grape juice on one side and receiving a plate of rice and beans on the other. <laughs> I imagined all kinds of people from the margins sitting together in community and seeing each other around the table. But when I opened my eyes, I was sitting in a pew all by myself, <laughs> looking at the back of people's heads. <laughs> and I look out and I see the pews and I know that each one represents a family. And I see belonging everywhere. But I also see a world of people who do not share the same pain and frustration and sadness that I experience and hear from people in the margins. Because there's no place for that sense of solidarity in their world of what it means to be a Christ follower. No songs in the minor key ending without resolve. No accidentals that leave you unhinged. No room for tears and voicing the fears that come with being a member of the many marginalized groups that I represent. But a seat at the table is still a message of hope for me that all are welcome, even if I didn't feel that way alone in my pew. I didn't take communion that day because I wasn't ready to embrace a seat at the table without a voice at the table. How could I drink the body of Christ shed for me and eat of the, sorry, I read that so wrong. <laughs> How can I drink of the blood of Christ shed for me and eat of the body of Christ broken for me when we can deny the, the brokenness of the people around us when the bodies are piling up and when, there are blood, when there's blood spilled on the ground. And I longed for a community that day. And I often feel like I have to wait until heaven to see it. So that leaves me in a desperate place, a place where I'm longing for the presence of God to live in me and to restore my eyes like Hagar so that I can see the well of the living one who sees me, the living one who hears me. The God who stepped into otherness in the person of Jesus Christ and the God who spent most of his time with outsiders, the God who qualifies, legitimizes, heals, comforts, emboldens, and the God who not only says, I see you and I hear you, but a God who experienced the same pain and suffering, betrayal and abuse that we experience, and he says, me too. And if you take the challenge to love Jesus, to love like Jesus, you will definitely find yourself being called to go out of your way or to get out of the way. And you either have to cross a boundary or let down a wall. Someone or something needs to heal your eyes so that you can see, like Hagar, the well of the living one who sees, and so that the living one who sees can enable you to see well. And I ask that question to people. I wish I could be seen in my struggle with, and here are some of the responses that I got. I wish I could be seen in my struggle with depression. I wish I could be seen in my struggle with anxiety. 
in my struggle with not feeling good enough, in my struggle with realizing that sexual abuse was not my fault, in my struggle with chronic pain, in my struggle with sharing my struggle. And these are only a few examples of those who were willing to stand, but I think it's important that we start using our eyes not only to look but to seek. Because the God who saw us when we were far off and strangers to the promise went a very long way to seek and find us. And certainly, we need his eyes and ears as much as we need to be his hands and feet. So today I stand and I fill in the blank myself and I wish I could be seen in my struggle with facing the implications of following a God who not only sees me but calls me to see people who don't even want to see me. And I've struggled with two years as I've learned about oppression and injustice in this world. And I've struggled to understand the political nature of my existence and I will leave that there because I cannot unpack that today. And I've struggled to hear the Bible preached and to see community done in a way that avoids our responsibility to respond to the world and its suffering. So now that you have seen me and you've heard me, what will you do? And how can we together learn and discover a God who sees and hears us? And can we do this journey together? Or will it turn out that the table that we keep inviting people to only exists in theory? It's so easy for us to skip over Hagar's story and to see Abram and Sarai and to see Hagar as a simple diversion to God's plan for humanity. But I have to ask you, why would God speak to a woman, make her a promise, a matriarch, and give her an inheritance? Maybe God is saying, maybe God is saying that Hagar too needs God and that we too need Hagar. We need her presence to make us uncomfortable, to remind us that there have been wrongs committed among us. And we need her to sit at the same table with us and demand her equality. And to, we need to make room for her voice. And we need to recognize her full humanity as the one who God saw and the one who God heard. And when you look upon her face, you might be able to deny your responsibility in the circumstances that got her to where she is. But I can tell you that when we hear her story, it implicates us. We either see her or we don't. We either hear her or we don't, because there is no unseeing and unhearing and no washing our hands of her blood if we choose to send her away. So I see myself in Hagar as one whose presence demands to be seen, but my identity in Christ also calls me to be one who sees. So this year I've spent a lot of time praying to God that he would break my heart and help me to pray with others and develop empathy. And I have let myself enter into this discomfort with others who are afflicted. And it's amazing how many opportunities I've had in this community um, to walk alongside the broken, to go out of my way, and to get out of the way. But I know that that heart comes from knowing that God calls me from a place of otherness and of being unwanted and of being unheard. And in some case, because I'm introverted, pre preferring it that way and choosing comfort as I find it. But I challenge you to do the same, to pray a prayer that God would open your eyes and your ears and your heart, and that you would have opportunities to seek emotional, situational, and spiritual discomfort to hear and see the other. And I don't want to stand here being content to leave you in your comfort, knowing that we are called to walk in compassion, which literally means to suffer with. And so if humanity is all about self-preservation, 
and Christianity becomes focusing on the light and easy stuff. And I really want you guys to listen to this very, very closely. People will get lost in their lonely places in the margins. Their experiences unheard, unfelt, and unattended to. People will die when our eyes are closed and when we make too much of our own holy noise to hear the sound of their cries. But Jesus calls us to come and die, and there is no coming to him without going out of our way, and there is no dying without getting out of the way. And there is a need for us to exchange our will for his. In Jesus' first sermon, he read from Isaiah and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering the sight of the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that is good news. It's good news for those who need to be seen and heard, but it's bad news for those of us who would rather have our eyes closed and our ears covered as we rock back and forth and sing songs about how we want God to set our hearts on fire. It is indeed easier for us to accept a Jesus that looks nothing like the biblical one in order to maintain our comfort and like Matt Thomas said, it's easier for us to admire Jesus than to follow him. But this Jesus stood up and he threw off the last vestiges of comfort from his hometown. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> and he got up and he started a ministry that required him to go out of his way to see and hear, help and heal. And I believe that stories are important for shaping our empathy, empathy for the other and so if you want to, you know, read some content about your heart being broken and developing empathy, please go to my blog. <laughs> um, I can sometimes be a story chaser, looking for connections and making analogies. And I sometimes see stories before I see people, and there's a danger in that. And I was reminded of this in a conversation with a friend. We are both from countries where people see themselves as missionaries, too. And we have very particular views about missions. And we have seen what it's like for people to maintain a distance in their mission work. And we have heard the stories. And our cultures are very hospitable to the outsiders, but we often cringe in discomfort when we hear how those stories are told. You just can't believe how they worshiped when they had so little. It was a blessing. And they offered us food, and I just, I couldn't help but cry. It was so beautiful. It will change my life forever. And I don't mean to use sarcasm to hurt people's feelings, but it's amazing how when people return with these stories, they can shed tears for a few weeks and do donate a couple of boxes of clothes to Goodwill and carry on. But they do little to attempt being true neighbors, to live in poverty and discomfort and to speak the language and to fall into a daily rhythm of normality to see beyond the beautiful. No. And we are called to actually see and hear the afflicted from a place of compassion and a place of suffering with. A place, but yet somehow we find ourselves returning to out of sight, out of mind, out of consciousness and out of visible responsibility but I was called to come and die. So I came to ENC and I learned about a world that breaks my heart every single day. And so I thought for sure that my heart was weak and I desire 
so much to be strong, but God has taught me something different, that it's important for me to be tenaciously tenderhearted. Because I believe that crying in solidarity is a spiritual gift. And so I will be a pastor. It's taken me three and a half years to realize I have no choice in that matter. <laughs> and so... <laughs> Oh. <laughs> yeah. So when I went to Ferguson for Fusion, that call became so much clearer for me. And my convictions, the things I experienced there firsthand, getting to see and hear. And on our first day, we went to this church called Wellspring Church. And a young boy sang the song that you are about to hear Tappy sing with us. And I've seen people worship before, but... If you have never seen Tappy, let me tell you, I have to ask myself if I've ever worshipped in my life. <laughs> when she follows Jesus who called her to come and die, it brought her here, and I think she's a missionary to us. And last week we got to hear her sing in Zulu, but there's something interesting about Zulu is the word for hello is literally I see you. <laughs> so if you're here, in this community, feeling inadequate, I see you and I hear you. And there is a part of me that feels inadequate, but there's also a part of me that is pregnant with purpose because I know that I have a God who sees me because I know that that God personally knows what it's like not to be seen and heard by us. But he sees me and he sees us, he sees you, and he calls us closer and there's no way for us to get closer to him, this God, this ultimate other. There's no way to him that doesn't require us to change and transform our lives. There is no way to him that doesn't require us to go out of our way and to get out of the way, to give it all away. There is no way without embracing first the God who sees, who saw us first and who loved us first when we were strangers, when we were the driven out, when we were the unknown in the fortresses of the world, when we were the Hagar. So with one month left in my college career, a change of identity is coming for me. Or so I thought. I haven't found who I am at ENC. I was simply reminded of who I've always been. And for you, I don't know if anyone has taken interest in your story, but I can tell you that God sees you and God hears you. And I can tell you that hopefully this message will serve as a reminder for the people here who are called to see and hear you to sing the song back to you when you have forgotten who you are. And wherever you are, and whatever you are in, and wherever you are from, whatever you are running to or away from, just know that when God, the God who sees you, when he meets you on that road, and when he asks you, where are you from and where are you going, and when he tells you who you are and who you're going to be, you will never be the same. Let us pray. God, thank you so much that you see us and you hear us and you call us into a community where we are called to see and hear each other, God. And in that calling, we are meant to do something with that. We are not meant to rest in our comfort and to stay safe, but we are called to the unsafe, to the broken, to the places where people are hurting. And God, when you see those of us that are hurting in this community, God, you tell us who we are and where we are going, and you tell us that we are someone in you. And I just thank you for that so much. And I thank you, God, that you've put me in a place like ENC 
And you've taken me from a place of confusion about my life and where I'm going, and you've made it very clear what my purpose is. And Lord God, I know that many people have come here to discover their purpose, but God, I pray that after today they would, they would know that they've always had a purpose. They just needed to be reminded of what that was. And I pray, Lord God, that we would be a community that, that serves to remind one another of who we are in you. In your name we pray. Amen.